going to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Ah, good evening and welcome to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'm very excited for tonight's show. I have a very special guest I've been looking forward to talking to for a while. Be sure, folks, though, I am now on social media. Go and like the Joey Clark Radio Hour Facebook page so you can hear about great upcoming guests and whatever's on my mind. But without further ado... And yes, I know y'all love listening to Yes, but without further ado, I want to bring on my guest. His name is Gary Chartier. He's the Associate Dean and Professor of Law and Business Ethics at La Sierra University out in California. Received his bachelor's degree there at La Sierra. His PhD at the University of Cambridge and his JD at UCLA. Gary, how are you this evening? Uh, Great to be here. Thank you for being here. Um, I really wanted to introduce folks to your particular outlook um, and all the study you have done. Now, of course, we only have like 50 minutes of talk time with ads, so we can't cover everything. But you're the author of many books, have received uh, accolades across the board in uh, your academic career. I personally have read your book, The Conscience of an Anarchist. Um, it is a, a wonderful work, very straightforward. Sometimes when I read some of the older anarchist work or libertarian work, they uh, they tend to go on and on and on. And your book is this concise argument, and I love that. And want to get into that a little bit later in the show. But first, I want to kind of ask you about your uh, beginnings, how you personally became aware of politics, and how you've evolved over the years. Well, it's a great question, and uh, definitely my evolution has been, uh, you know, kind of serpentine, I guess. I uh, I grew up in a home in which politics uh, seems to be pretty constant as, uh, as a topic of conversation. Uh, my parents were Goldwater Republicans, and uh, that probably... Uh, uh, unites me with a lot of other uh, a lot of other libertarians in my generation. Um, I had go- parents who were Goldwater Republicans. I grew up reading science fiction and programming computers, and I was socially awkward, and so I was just primed, of course, to become a libertarian. But um, you know, my parents, um, you know, had the cluster of views that you might you might expect uh, under the circumstances in general. Though there were though there were some pri- there were some surprises. Uh, they were both, uh, you know, pretty conservative Protestants, but uh, because of the particular cluster of uh, theological views they had, and also because my dad was an MD who, you know, regularly had to think about healthcare decisions, uh, they both were uh, uh, were pro-choice in, a, in an environment in which a lot of uh, similarly conservative folks might not have been, and uh, you know, they certainly had. Um, had some libertarian impulses that I picked up from them, uh, even as they also uh, probably took some other positions that uh, that were not so libertarian. So I grew up probably embracing an attitude uh, that involved a commitment to, to freedom, 
that I'd picked up from them and radicalized it. And so sometime in my, uh, uh, you know, early to mid-adolescence, I started reading uh, libertarian literature, uh, you know, pretty pretty predictable stuff. I read some Milton Friedman, some Hayek, some uh, Rothbard, some Robert Nozick, and, uh, you know, found myself really, uh, you know, really engaged by that. I, uh, I took a, an unfortunate uh, detour uh, kind of at the end of adolescence, uh, you know, toward the end of college. Uh, I think I was unprepared to, to grapple with the uh, uh, probably some some difficulties that uh, uh, the the world presents to, to anybody uh, I wasn't sure how uh, libertarianism would respond to how anarchic uh, views would respond to you know various kinds of large-scale social problems and social misery and uh, I didn't really have a framework to grapple with that properly and I drifted into a what was in general a a kind of boring and pretty conventionally social democratic view for a while. And then, as I like to say to people, what really brought me back to my libertarian roots was the uh, the one-two punch delivered by George W. Bush and Barack Obama, who succeeded in radicalizing me because it was just so obvious how much they were aggrandizing power, engaging in, uh, in war and, uh, uh, you know, bailing out their corporate cronies. Uh, and so forth, and it was impossible to continue being at all uh, uh, sanguine about uh, about state power. And at the same time, I uh, thanks you know thanks to the joys of the internet, I rediscovered uh, the libertarian world and was able to really connect with some some great people, uh, notably uh, folks like Sheldon Richmond and uh, Charles Johnson, Roderick Long. Uh, Kevin Carson, uh, Joe Stromberg, and some others really gave me some intellectual tools that I could use to, on the one hand, recover and uh, celebrate and deepen and intensify that earlier libertarianism and uh, the anarchist impulses that I've been embracing from early on, and at the same time, you know, understand and deal with uh, some of the, um, you know, the social problems that I'd been concerned about and hadn't been able to kind of fit within a, a libertarian framework conveniently. So. Uh, yeah, it was a kind of, uh, you know, maybe not altogether predictable journey, uh, but uh, the interesting thing, I guess, is that I, in some ways, ended up back where I started, but having learned a lot more, and I hope, uh, you know, sharpened my understanding over the course uh, uh, course of that journey. Well, and I, I heard, or at least I read somewhere, that in junior high, you were interested in constitutions, and you wrote this constitution called the United American Empire, headed by you as the emperor. If you ever take another turn and you end up being emperor, can I be the chief executive propagandist, or maybe you're a fool or something like that? <laughs> uh, it sounds like a marvelous, uh, a marvelous arrangement. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll keep you posted if, uh, if uh, position as emperor comes my way. Let's, let's talk more. Absolutely. Well, and. I have gone through my own journeys, and it's mostly been from the right, but I've been searching because the faith I was raised in, uh, Roman Catholicism, didn't. I've learned a lot from it, I respect it, but it didn't speak to me. And I've, I've come across Epicurus, and I think this has something mm-hmm, to do with mm-hmm. your history. It's one quote from Epicurus saying, Friendship dances around the world, bidding us, to, bidding us all to awaken to the recognition of happiness. Uh, and mm, so mm, you had a turn, I believe, when you were at Cambridge where you started to study friendship. What road did that lead you down? Yeah, so my PhD dissertation uh, looks at the idea and the experience of friendship. And 
Um, I haven't written that much about the topic since. Uh, there's a there's a book that really should have emerged from the dissertation that never has. But mm. you know, I'm uh, more than not an extrovert. I'm somebody who really does draw energy from human interaction. And again, beginning in, in early adolescence, um, I started to make some deep, rich friendships that really mattered a lot to me. And uh, you know, it was, I think, part of the process of becoming my own person, differentiating myself from my family of origin. I hope not in a, you know, not in a hostile way, but just a, a, as a matter of uh, defining myself as a unique individual. Uh, forming those friendships really helped to uh, help to shape who I was in some, uh, you know, some awesome ways. And there are people I, uh, you know, became close to when I was 14, 15, 16, who were, you know, who are still really important in my life. And so um, because of how significant friendship had been to me, and in particular, I guess, uh, because of how significant one uh, particular group of friends had been for me, um, it really seemed like a, a, natural, a natural thing to uh, explore, uh, you know, a bunch of issues related to friendship. Uh, you know, the dissertation jumps around a bit. I mean, it looks at... Uh, at friendship and uh, it's kind of the nature of friendship. It looks at friendship and spirituality. It looks at friendship and politics. It looks at friendship and ethics. Uh, and it draws on, you know, resources both from philosophy and from religion, as well as some stuff in, in social science. And, uh, you know, it was really a, a delightful opportunity to spend, you know, the core of my graduate school time thinking about an experience that was hugely uh, important for me. And, uh, you know, I guess that's, that's continued to be significant uh, probably in more than one way, not only because I care about friendship and I'm glad to have thought about it, but because I've continued to write um, about personal relationships. Uh, you know, one of uh, my recent books uh, is a book about, uh, about marriage, uh, about love and marriage uh, and the law. I've... Um, uh, certainly, you know, I've written articles that uh, that are germane there. Uh, my my first book actually was a book in uh, uh, in religion that tried to look, it tried to ask whether uh, you know love uh, could really serve as the organizing principle for hmm. the you know for an understanding of uh, a religious belief. Uh, so yeah, a lot of things that I that I picked up in that uh, the course of that early uh, uh, work on friendship, uh, you know, really uh, really continues to be important to me and. Uh, just as my friends are important. Uh, another thing that mattered, actually, that was relevant early on, was I tried to think about a politics that mm -hmm. would take friendship seriously. So you might know that Aristotle, among others, uh, thought of friendship as the foundation of the political order of the Greek city-state. Easy enough to see that when you've got a uh, you know pretty small group of political actors, because of course only free adult males in that environment are going to be in a position to uh, play uh, political roles. Uh, under those circumstances, you know, a, a group of friends obviously could really be quite important. Uh, we live in a pretty different world, but I asked the question, if you really wanted to continue thinking of friendship as important for, uh, for political life, what kind of politics would you need? And I... You know, I was not, uh, you know, not in an anarchist mode at that point precisely, but I definitely saw that radical decentralization uh, hmm. was needed if you wanted to sort of recapture that uh, that early sense of, of friendship, political importance. So, yeah, yeah it's I think all, 
all of that work continues to, to resonate. Well, and I'm at that point of, of radical decentralization. I, depending on the day, I, I become anarchic. Uh, and mm-hmm. I've asked the question because, you know, as I got into libertarianism and just being a young sophomore guy, the young know-everything, obviously, I mm-hmm. I used to, you know, get, really get into heated fights on air and on social media. And it, for me, it was all about winning the argument, which can be important. <laughs> Arguments are wonderful. But, you know, I my dear mother, she passed two years ago, and I had to do... It was really a lot of soul-searching, and it made everything else, obviously, when you're in that type of melancholy, seem so unimportant, all the daily tit-for-tat with the political news. And then I started thinking about politics in that way, that the personal, for me, overthrew uh, political Mm. consideration. It was more Mm. about trying to understand people, foster love, and understand where people are coming from with their motivations rather than trying to win an argument. And so much of what your goal is, and I would like you to speak to this, when you advocate, and it it seems to have run when you were, say, a a social democrat and now as a a market, left market anarchist, what is your main motivation in regards to other people? You know, there's so much to say that rotates around there. Let, Let me begin by picking up on something you said uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, and that's, uh, uh, you know, just to think about the nature of, of political argument and what people want to accomplish with that. Um, one of my real burdens over the past several years, uh, including, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I really haven't written in depth about this, uh, but it really is something that's hugely important to me, is... Thinking about the value of a social order in which there can be a tremendous amount of experimentation and individuality can find expression in all sorts of different ways, and in which real connection is possible despite that difference that's an integral part of individuality. That is, I think we're... We're hardwired for connection. Uh, at any rate, I am, and I think many, many other people are, and we clearly all benefit from it in various ways. And yet, I think sometimes there's this perception that difference impedes connection, and we want to, um, in effect, uh, you know, obliterate difference on the part of the people we're trying to connect with, and I think that can be one of the motives that's involved in, in seeking uh, to win an argument. And I think you see this, especially in ideologically defined uh, groups, uh, and that can be the libertarian movement, it can be, you know, the communist movement, it can be, you know, hard-shell Southern Baptists, you know, I mean, there are a lot of different uh, uh, groups that are ideologically defined, but what we find, whatever the superficial uh, definition that a group offers, is how frequently those within the group end up fighting with and excluding others who are actually really close to them on the basis of ideological differences that really become, uh, in their perception, mammoth. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, when I was a graduate student at Cambridge, um, I happened to read uh, about the Lord Chancellor of England, Laird Mackay of Clashfair. 
He was a, uh, a Scottish mathematician and lawyer who had assumed uh, under Margaret Thatcher the position of Lord Chancellor, which back then, at any rate, was the uh, position of the person who kind of oversaw the legal system, was the, the kind of the judge in, who was a manager of the, of the British legal system. And uh, Led Mackay was uh, an elder in a tiny little Scottish uh, religious group. And so I have to back up. Back in the 19th century, this is a long story, but it, it's a crisp way of making a point, so okay. bear, bear with me, if you will. Uh, back in the 19th century, uh, there was the established church uh, in Scotland, the Church of Scotland, and there were a number of folks who thought that being tied up with the state was really uh, really a bad thing. Uh, they didn't want to be uh, subject to the rule of the state. They wanted to have an independent church, and so they created one. It was called the Free Church of Scotland. But then the Free Church of Scotland... Um, uh, underwent a schism because there were people in that group who thought that it was much too uh, much too liberal. Uh, they were uh, hardcore uh, conservative Calvinists, and so they split to form a group that came to be called the We Freeze, uh, not just the the, the Freeze, but the We Freeze. Hmm. Then there were folks who thought that the We Freeze were much too liberal, and they split from the We Freeze to form a group that is at least popularly referred to, and I'm not making this up as the We We Freeze, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, so, Laird Mackay of Clashburn was uh, an elder in the Wee Wee Freeze. And uh, at some point, uh, this would have been 88, fall of 88, he was, um, he was disciplined by the Wee Wee Freeze because he had, wait for it, attended the funeral of a Catholic colleague in a Catholic church. And uh, uh, this was such a uh, devastatingly bad thing that uh, he was uh, suspended from his role as an elder. I think he ultimately ended up leaving uh, the Wee Wee Freeze and just joining the Church of Scotland. But the, the, the striking thing for me about this was how, you know, there was just this tendency to split and split and split in search of increasing ideological purity, even if that meant, in practical terms, just rejecting more and more people and mm. creating alienated relationships with more and more people. And I think we see this when all of the different communist parties split, and I think we sometimes see it in the infighting uh, among libertarians. So when I think about what I want, what I want is a society in which there is, you know, as I say, there's all this individuality, there's room for tremendous experimentation on the part of individuals and small groups, and at the same time, we find ways to welcome into friendship people uh, you know who may well uh, you know may well see the world very differently. We don't need to be threatened by that. We don't need to feel that our um, integrity or our beliefs are somehow called into question because somebody else uh, somebody else differs with us. Uh, and we because we're not threatened, we won't respond in hostile and defensive and aggressive ways. Um, I, I notice this over and over again and. You know, when you talk about uh, the importance of love, I just, I resonate immediately with that. I say, you know, what I want is a world in which that's the norm and in which we can get along, uh, you know, not in spite of our differences, but indeed welcoming each other without uh, kind of making those differences barriers and indeed finding ways to, to learn from and celebrate uh, what's, what's going on in the social world around us rather than... Uh, uh, just uh, retreating in fear. Well, and I find that the schisms in, I don't, you know, there's always this, 
hand-wringing in the libertarian, the liberty movement that, you know, we're so, you know, sectarian. We have all these schisms ourselves, but you see it happening right now in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Yeah, absolutely. It, it happens everywhere, and you talking about all these schisms uh, reminds me of a phrase Christopher Hitchens used to use, that we are the pure and chosen few and all the rest are damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We don't want heaven crammed. And, like, how right, small right. is heaven going to be? Um, and it just, it it doesn't seem like the right way to go. I'd rather be a fool who loves than a a wise man who, who hates everybody. And, and it moves me to what I was talking to folks about last night. I was trying to introduce them slowly, maturely to the ideas of Deirdre McCloskey and how Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, she uses the phrase capitalism made us, uh, rich and wealthy beyond anybody's wildest dreams, not even the original liberals, but it also made us good people, or it tends to allow us to foster virtues. But now I'm sitting here holding in my hands, and actually, the guy you edited this book with, Charles Johnson, gave it to me. Um, I met Charles at a dinner with uh, Jeffrey Tucker, and I went, wait, you're that Charles Johnson? Um, (laughs) And he is such a a wonderful guy, but the book is Markets Not Capitalism, and I encourage everybody to pick it up, especially if you are listening right now and you are of, say, a a left-wing persuasion, uh, you voted for Hillary Clinton, you're a Democrat, I, I hope that you pick up this book. It has so many wonderful essays from you, Gary, from Charles, from Sheldon Richmond, from Kevin Carson, from so many people. But you have one point in this of why do we need to call it freed markets as opposed to capitalism? So, you know, this is not a hill I'm here to die on. Let's be really clear about that. I think that there are people for whom uh, this is is really somehow the central question. And uh, I think when they pick up uh, that book, or they, uh, they engage with uh, some of us uh, at the Center for Stateless Society, they have the sense that, you know, this is really what we're, what we're on about, is getting people to change their words, and they think, oh, no, not another instance <laughs> of the language police. And, uh, you know, I, th- that's not the point for me. And, I, you know, I have tremendous respect for Deirdre's work, and I totally get that, you know, it comes naturally to her to use capitalism there. And... I, I'm I'm just not here to lose sleep over that, but I can tell you why I care about this. Okay, I think that that the the language of uh, of capitalism outside the context of you know of work by by classical liberal and libertarian economists, I think the word capitalism very frequently means first of all, of course, as Roderick Long has pointed out, something muddled. Uh, it often gets used by the media and uh, indeed by by some other uh, commentators, uh, even academic commentators, to mean something like the free market system we have now. Mm. Uh, <laughs> when, of course, what we have now is a system that is riddled with uh, state-secured privilege that's been misshaped by past acts of violence and expropriation. And it just doesn't, in fact, represent what uh, what a genuinely liberated uh, market order uh, would look like. And so uh, I think we can absolutely say with Deirdre and with, you know, a number of other people who've been writing about the, you know, the so-called great transformation, um, we can say, look, markets did an amazing job for an immense number of people, and let's not deny that. 
But let's also recognize that things could have been better and uh, things could have been excitingly different in a variety of ways uh, without some of these distortions. When people who say might be inclined to you know, vote for, for Bernie Sanders or for Jill Stein, uh, people who relish uh, you know, the latest Michael Moore film, uh, people who are not, that is to say, just kind of establishment, corporatist Democrats, right. uh, but see themselves as critics of the status quo on the left. When those people, um, you know, march in the streets or, you know, send tweets or whatever they do, I think very often their instinctive assumption because of this rhetoric of capitalism is the free market system we have now, their assumption is very frequently, I think, to look at things they don't like in the society and, and say, these things are the fault of markets. Hmm. Now, and what, what I worry about is that that's ultimately a calumny. It's a, it's a libel on, uh, uh, on markets, which do such amazing things for people uh, you know, throughout the society. When bad things happen in a society that is defined by the presence of market institutions, it becomes really easy for people to blame those market institutions uh, when, in fact, other things uh, very often are, uh, are at root uh, the problem. And so I want us to use language of, of markets, of free markets, of, to use uh, William Gillis's uh, fetching phrase, freed, that is, liberated markets. Uh, let's use that language if we can so that it's very clear that we're not simply on board with the sort of boosterism that embraces the status quo in our society. We can absolutely acknowledge with people like Deirdre, with people like Angus Deaton, how much, uh, you know, uh, the distorted and misshaped uh, markets that have operated uh, over the past two to three hundred years have improved people's lives. I don't want to deny that. I don't want to underplay that at all. But I think by avoiding uh, kind of mindless capitalism uh, cheering, we give ourselves more freedom to look in radically critical ways at institutions in our society that are unjust and that, in fact, distort markets. Well, and I, and first off, I think Deirdre says in her introduction to her, uh, her apology that uh, she's using capitalism in a wishy-washy way, and I <laughs> I really like what you're uh, you're saying because I get so frustrated with some of my conservative friends. And for instance, Republicans came out today and said we're doing you know free market reforms. Oh, great! You're now blockading or block granting Medicaid to the states instead of having it be a federal government reimbursement, and you call that a free market reform. It they <laughs> you know, they constantly are using the language of liberty and free markets where there are so many ties and privileges to big business, uh, that they're, they're not really living up to what I think we mean when we're trying to talk about free markets, or thus we want to have the markets freed. We want them liberated. And it, it is, uh, it's frustrating that there is so much of a language game here. There's a strategic game. Uh, yeah. But this is a big part of, of having these discussions. And we have to hit a quick break here, Gary. Our, our guest tonight, folks, is Gary Chardier. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. And as I do every show, I bring you some music that I actually listened to this morning 
on my vinyl record player. But this one's a little weird because it was a happy accident of, let's say, online commerce. I'm a huge Prince fan, and all I wanted was his debut album for you on vinyl to listen to. But I get to the I get to the door, the mailman's come, there's the package on the outside, it says for you by Prince, and I open it up and it's the greatest hits of my chemical romance. <laughs> and there is one song though on that greatest hits of my chemical romance. I was playing playing it on my record player today called Welcome to the Black Parade. It's a fantastic song, reminds me of high school. Folks, stay tuned. Again, my guest is Gary Chartier. We'll be right back. When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city to see a marching band. He said, son, when you grow up, would you be? to the program. You are listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. My guest this evening is Gary Chartier. He is the author of a book called Conscience of an Anarchist. He edited a book I'm sitting here holding, looking at right now, Markets Not Capitalism. He's written several other books. He is an associate dean, I believe, at the Law School and Business Ethics School at La Sierra University out in California. And Gary, to continue our conversation, I want to focus on your book, Conscience of an Anarchist. And by quoting words that I think most Americans know, though sometimes we give our fellow Americans too much credit, uh, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So I ask you, Gary... Are we actually a nation based on consent of the governed? So, I think we're not. And uh, the interesting thing is that I think that's widely recognized. I don't have the conscience of an anarchist in front of me, but I remember that when I, uh, uh, when I wrote that portion of the book, I cited a poll uh, which noted the fact that some very substantial portion of the uh, American public did not believe that the government as then constituted enjoyed the consent of the governed. And uh, the reality is, uh, if you ask um, whether you or I or uh, most of our listeners uh, ever uh, uh, did anything that actually conveyed uh, genuine assent to the authority of the United States government or of any other governmental institution, 
Uh, I think the answer is almost certainly going to be no. Uh, the reality is that uh, um, people uh, who arrive as immigrants are asked to swear oaths uh, supporting the Constitution uh, and so forth. But for those of us who uh, who were born here, or, or those of us who uh, you know arrive in, in other ways, uh, you know, rather than through the kind of formal immigration process, uh, there simply isn't any kind of uh, assent. Uh, and of course, even when you do formally assent, as Charles Johnson points out in, uh, in a very powerful essay that I uh, that I refer to, I believe, in the conscience of an anarchist, um, you know, if you consent uh, with a gun pointed at your head, uh, there's really not. Uh, there's not much uh, much reason to treat that uh, that seriously as consent, even when it does occur. But in most cases, uh, it doesn't. Uh, you know, there's no consent at all. Um, the fact is, we arrive in the middle of a social system that's already ongoing. There are people uh, claiming to exercise legitimate authority. There are people who definitely wield a uh, pretty massive force that they can use to uh, uh, to make us uh, obey them. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of us go along, and a lot of us, you know, may just uh, pragmatically welcome, uh, you know, the uh, uh, relative orderliness of the society. Um, but I don't think it would occur to, to people, in the absence of what I would call ideological mystification, uh, to imagine that uh, there was any kind of genuine consensual basis for the authority that's exercised over us. I think what happens in the history of... Uh, uh, you know, Western societies, that you have uh, uh, people like Hobbes and Locke who formulate the idea that there is a kind of social contract uh, that serves as the basis uh, for governmental authority, um, really as a way of providing a new source of legitimacy for the state, right? So, I mean, uh, traditionally, uh, in the centuries immediately before that, state authority had seemed to be based on the divine right of kings, and it just became harder and harder and harder to imagine, uh, you know, including for very devout religious people, that God somehow had, uh, you know, entitled uh, uh, this or that person just because of how, you know, he or she happened to have arrived in the world uh, with the authority to govern other people's lives. It just seemed more and more absurd. And when you saw really bad behavior on the part of kings, uh, even more absurd. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, in England... Uh, we had uh, people rise up and actually execute a king for, for bad behavior. And so uh, the, the divine right of kings just was exerting less and less of a hold on people's imaginations. And so you have somebody like Hobbes who's terrified by the threat of just chaos and social violence. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Hobbes basically says, look, we need to submit to the absolute authority of somebody, whether it's the king or a parliament. You know, in, in his book Leviathan, uh, you know, he's, he's open to the possibility that the Leviathan he envisions could be any number of different kinds of institutions. But we need to submit to somebody's absolute authority so that we won't kill each other and we can all just have a peaceful society. And so he, he you know, kind of frames this in terms of a social contract, but it seems pretty clear that... Uh, uh, the basic argument is not rooted in the view that, you know, some people in some unimaginable distant past actually got together and agreed uh, to give over their authority to the monarch. Rather, the thought is that would be the rational thing to do. And mm. so there, if it were the rational thing for them to do, it would be the rational thing for us to do. I mean, that's really, I think, the force of what, you know, what Hobbes is up to. It's a little less clear in, you know, in Locke's case, 
uh, Locke, uh, you know, does maybe think that there there actually was some kind of social contract in the past. I guess that's a matter of debate among people who study Locke. But anyway, uh, the bottom line is the basic function of these views was to provide some kind of new justification uh, for social order. So Locke, again, had seen uh, this revolution happen. He understood that revolution was potentially legitimate, but he really wanted to cabin these uh, energies that had uh, kind of exploded into uh, uh, into the open. Uh, he didn't want people, uh, I think, uh, engaging in lots of revolutions. Uh, you know, he wanted to... Uh, uh, to really see the uh, grant and the withdrawal of, uh, of consent as, uh, as part of a pretty stable process of government maintenance. And, you know, it's clear that the American founders who used this language of the consent of the governed, uh, you know, weren't altogether uh, consistent about it, right? I mean, right. even if you thought that consent was exercised through the political process, we know that, uh, you know, there were slaves, there were women, uh, you know, there were, you know, other people uh, who, who lacked uh, political enfranchisement. But, uh, you know, so... You know, the, the rhetoric, though, became really powerful, even though it didn't accurately describe things, even within the terms of the, the political system they were embracing. People learn in their, you know, their high school government classes that uh, the consent of the governed is what uh, justifies authority, and they just kind of repeat that, and they kind of believe it without stopping to think about the fact that they themselves almost certainly never granted any consent. Uh, well, and I, I know that... Ed- the age of 28, as I am, I didn't consent for a lot of the legacy programs like Social Security, Medicare, or uh, what I like to call American Empire and all the obligations abroad. And I mean, these are things I'm born into, and I pride myself on not having any personal debt. And then, oh, April comes around and the government is taking out debt in my name. And it it is very frustrating, 45%. I think around that number didn't even vote in this past election, and I find that it is that it is not consent based. That you do not have consent when the government is demanding that consent. And folks, I think Gary just dropped off for a second, but now he is back. Or Gary, are you there? I am, yeah. That was almost seamless. I was filling time. I'm trying to get good at this. But I already just gave the game away that you dropped off. But I was saying that there are so many legacy programs, whether, you know, domestic welfare or, you know, imperial obligations abroad, even well-intentioned, and that could be debated itself, that, you know, at 28 years old, I'm born into this, and I'm supposedly consented to this. 45% of the population around there didn't vote. And it just on the face of it to me seems absurd and i've met a lot of people in my life but i've never met the people it it's almost right. like this rhetoric this idealistic rhetoric is people are taking it too literally yeah i mean i think there's a you know it's easy to get snookered because you hear it in your you know your high school uh, high school government class well that's the foundation of our democracy it's uh, the consent of the governed and uh, uh so this just gets repeated and people are in effect uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, just sort of intellectually bullied into accepting that as the premise for their participation uh, in, uh, you know, societal life. And then, you know, if that, uh, you know, that high school government teacher uh, gets asked, uh, so when exactly did we consent, if that's what matters, uh, what's the response going to be? Well, 
uh, I don't know, by remaining here, you consent. But, you know, clearly that can't be right. right. You know, I mean, I go about living my life and uh, uh, because I choose not to, uh, you know, sell my house and uh, leave and, uh, you know, vanish into the Pacific. Uh, therefore, I'm, I'm somehow consenting. I mean, I think that's that's pretty ridiculous. But people don't stop really to think about what this means. The interesting thing, however, for whatever it's worth, and I don't want to put more weight on this than it deserves, but when kind of serious political theorists think about this, I think I think there's more and more of a consensus that actual consent is uh, is absent. And so, you know, I think in among uh, political philosophers who think about uh, the justification for state authority, it's really become, I think, quite acceptable to be a, quote, philosophical anarchist. Hmm. Uh, now, what, what that ends up meaning is not uh, necessarily that you have any belief in the merits of a genuinely stateless society, but it does mean that you think that the state lacks the ability to issue commands to people that, as a matter of course, they're obligated to obey. And there may be reasons that are... So then people who take this view will go on to say, but there may be all sorts of pragmatic reasons why we should go along. Mm. Uh, they're you know, much more kind of Hobbesian reasons. They're not Lockean reasons. The you know, kind of full-blown consent, the transfer of rights uh, to some authority uh, from me uh, you know, to this authority, uh, that's just not a view that I think most people do Doing, doing this kind of stuff in political philosophy. Think about whether they've got the view that, you know, uh, Hobbes is probably right, that we probably don't want to kill each other, and uh, maybe we need a central authority to do that. Uh, but uh, consent-based justifications are not available. I mean, I'm not saying there are, there's nobody who thinks they are. Clearly, some people do, but I think it's much more common these days. Uh, well, and that makes that makes me think of why I included in my introduction a line from H.L. Mencken, is that in politics, man must learn to rise above principle. And uh, <laughs> I, I remember uh, I had a progressive polka dot sock feminist teacher uh, who wrote up on the board one day, democracy. And she asked the class, what does this mean? Nobody would raise her hand. I raised my hand because I was already doing a radio show even when I, I was not a good student, Gary, um, unless I was really interested in the class. And so, But I raised my hand, and I think I said something like, democracy is the theory of government. The common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. She didn't think it was funny. Um, but it, it is, I think, in my mind, I, I look at it now, and it's almost like my idealism as I was raised an American has fallen away, and I've become... And I have been very cynical, but I'm trying to think of positive solutions. And you offer all sorts of options uh, in your book, Conscience of an Anarchist. Uh, are there historical examples, loose historical examples? Are there some potential ways we could, say, address problems like helping the poor and maybe you know, defending against people who are just violent folks? Yeah, so, you know, I think that just to carry on from where we were a moment ago with this talk about consent, I mean, the reality is that people often imagine that social order uh, really depends on, on Leviathan, that we can't defend ourselves, that we can't, uh, um, you know, take care of each other in various ways without some central authority. But the reality is, if... 
we were actually intent in general on resisting that central authority. Central authority obviously couldn't uh, couldn't fly, right? The reality is it's our perception and by our I don't mean yours and mine, but just you know people in general, the perception that that central authority is legitimate and therefore we should go along with it that enables it to continue uh, doing what it does. So if you had a genuinely consensual social order, a free social order that people understood to be legitimate in the same way, um, I think we could expect them to go along with that and to uh, to, to take seriously the uh, you know the legal institutions and the social norms and, and that kind of order. I don't think there's anything magical about uh, cooperating with uh, with the state when the reality is the state most of the time isn't making people do anything. There's always the threat that it can do that, right. but uh, people's kind of uh, just uh, acquiescence really is uh, is important, and that acquiescence is driven by a perception of legitimacy. So, if we think about about history, I don't, you know, I don't want to pretend that there are just perfect examples anywhere of uh, the kind of society that you or I, uh, you or I would want. Again, people had different ideologies; they emerged from different circumstances, and uh, you know, undoubtedly, uh, societies that are sometimes pointed to as examples here, uh, you know, aren't aren't perfect ones. But it is certainly still the case that. We can talk about big picture and large, uh, you know, large scale examples, and also some smaller scale examples that are relevant. Uh, so, in terms of just this maintaining social order uh, with uh, certainly very limited uh, social authority, uh, you know, political authority, uh, state authority, uh, you know, that you can think about examples provided by. Uh, uh, you know, by ancient Iceland, uh, which has been worked through in great detail by people like David Friedman. Uh, you know, Ireland, uh, uh, you know, before about the ninth century. Uh, similarly, uh, the um, one example that it's always kind of fun to toss out because it upsets people uh, is um, is Ethiopia. Hmm. Because people often think about uh, about Ethiopia as a um, you know, really, just a, a crazy example. But we, you know, we wouldn't want that. Isn't that just the domain of uh, crazy warlords? But uh, you know, the reality is that um, outside the capital, uh, order has largely been maintained uh, by uh, you know these consensual institutions, the uh, the Islamic courts. Uh, are they perfect? No. Do, do, do you and I necessarily want to embrace the particular legal order that they would? Uh, Endorse not necessarily, but the reality is that um, they're they're not territorial monopolists, and they've managed to maintain maintain order. All of the crazy kind of Ethiopia stories that people uh, uh, people often um, uh, repeat are stories that have to do with the uh, you know kind of the crazy violence in and around the capital, right. and uh, and that's that's just not the same thing as what's going on uh, you know what's going on in the countryside. Um, you know, Pete Leeson in uh, a wonderful, wonderful book that you and some of your readers might know called The Invisible Hook, uh, talks about the way in which uh, the pirates in the golden age of piracy, who obviously had no uh, no state uh, authority uh, to uh, to manage their lives, nonetheless uh, uh, found ways to create uh, kind of robust and uh, sustainable uh, legal systems that they uh, they lived under and uh, you know, they had constitutions and they actually adhered to them uh, because uh, it made sense for them to do so. 
uh, you know, it was a, a matter of, uh, of sheer practicality. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, taking care of the, uh, the economically vulnerable, I mean, one thing that I think would make a lot of sense to talk about is um, the history of mutual aid in uh, you know, both England and the United States. Uh, famously, there's, uh, you know, there's a really substantial uh, a record, uh, say, in the 19th century of the friendly societies, the mutual aid societies, providing very inexpensive health care and, uh, uh, you know, unemployment, uh, you know, coverage and, uh, and retirement, funeral assistance and so forth for their members. Uh, I know we're running out of time, but so I just want to alert people to uh, a wonderful article they can find online by my friend Roderick Long called How Governments Solved the Healthcare Crisis. Yes. And the healthcare crisis with which he's concerned here is the crisis of care costing too little to keep up the monopoly uh, profits that the healthcare providers wanted. Uh, so uh, check that out. Bottom line, I think there's some really interesting stuff out there. Well, and folks, Roderick's not too far from us. I think he's still over there at Auburn. I've had the pleasure Correct. of meeting him. And Gary, I really appreciate you being on the show tonight. I wish we did uh, have more time to go into things. This discussion could lead all uh, many down many roads. But thank you for being my guest tonight. Folks, again, it has been Gary Chartier. Check out his book, Conscience of an Anarchist. Check out the book he helped edit, Markets, Not Capitalism, and generally what he is doing. Uh, Gary, thanks again. A real pleasure to be here. Well, folks, that'll do it for us tonight. You've been listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Have a good evening, and tune in tomorrow for my guest, Jeffrey Tucker, on his new book, Right-Wing Collectivism, The Other Threat to Liberty. Joey Clark.